Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. There's liberty. That's a reason to praise the Lord, church. Could we take 10 or 15 seconds, lift our voices, lift our hearts, and lift our hands and begin to praise Him from the bottom of your heart? Exodus 33 and 7. I would reiterate everything I've said uh, over the pulpit in respect to Pastor and Bishop McGee and their families. What a tremendous first family you have here at this church. Words could not do justice to how wonderful, how godly, how classy, how kind, how humble they are. They are just tremendous people. The Bible said to whom much is given, much is required. And because we know them, there will be much required of us. They've been such a good example, such great mentors to people like you and I. And I just want them to know how much I appreciate. Your pastor came today when we went to the hospital, sat there the entire time we were there just to keep us company, make sure there was nothing we needed and, and things like that. I've sat in, in dozens of hospital rooms with folks and never knew how much it meant until today to walk out and see that smiling face. Was such a, it was such a classy, such an honorable, and such a Christian act, and I appreciate the hospitality we've received, the basket, every meal, but I appreciate you folks as well. Uh, you make it so easy to preach. The atmosphere of worship that you create in every service is simply incredible. Incredible is the wrong word because it's not without credibility. It's amazing. Amazing, yes. Incredible, no. And, and I appreciate so much what you've done here. And, and, and I won't tell you I'm going to preach short tonight because I may not. You all have helped me preach so much. I've read one, one scripture, every text of this, these services. Uh, tonight, I read a manuscript. Um, uh, we're just going to change everything up. And you've been so good to me that it's your fault. <laughs> Exodus 33 and 7. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp. Afar off from the camp. And called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. Now, do you see a theme here? It, the, 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 they are emphatic that the tabernacle was no longer inside the camp. That's the point that's being made here over and over again, without the camp. And it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. Moses is going to the tabernacle. Everybody's watching. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. 
And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. Now, just to paraphrase, to, to, to summarize, Moses moves the tabernacle out of the camp. He gets up and goes to the tabernacle, and the people watch him take the trip. They see the presence of God visibly descend on Moses. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. I'm going to Hebrews 13 next. But you've got Moses is moving, he's moving church out of the middle of the community. He's going to church. Everybody else is watching. They can see the presence of the Lord moving with Moses, speaking to him face to face as a man talks to his friend. And they choose to worship in the door of their homes. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse, or Hebrews chapter 13, rather, in verse 10. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp. Bearing his reproach for we have no continuing city but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. You may be seated. A little different translation of that same text said, let us go outside. Let us go where Jesus is, where the action is at. Not trying to be privileged insiders, but taking our share in the abuse of Jesus. This insider world is not our home. We have our eyes peeled for a city that is about to come. Let's take our place outside with Jesus. No longer pouring out sacrifice blood of animals, but pouring out sacrificial praise from our lips in Jesus' name. Is it worth the trip? Tonight I want to talk to you from the topic, it's worth the trip. Every great explorer in the history of the world has in some way, for some reason, been enamored with the examination of the unknown. From Father Abraham to Columbus to Lewis and Clark to Neil Armstrong, there is a certain drive in some men and women that they must go where they've never been before. There are those among us that feel the call to see what no human eyes have seen before. Where others fear to tread is where they choose to live out the moments of their lives. This one trait, I guess we could call it curiosity, has the power to turn mere mortals into legends and icons. Because they refuse to play it safe, they find wonders, mysteries, sights, and discoveries that the rest of us would only be able to dream of were they not fixated on going where nobody's ever been before. 
understand there are those uh, that have lived on planet earth uh, that if they had not had the courage uh, to step out uh, and take a trip uh, where everybody else said it was unsafe uh, we wouldn't know the things we know uh, we wouldn't go the places we go we wouldn't see the things we see but every great explorer since time began had to ask themselves one question upon feeling the call to go beyond. They had to say to themselves, is it worth the trip? Is it worth getting out of my comfort zone and going where I've never been before most explorers do not explore out of necessity they explore out of a desire to go deeper and see greater and do more than they've ever done before and yet in knowing the history and knowing these explorers and knowing their stories we want to determine the worth of the trip by the distance of the journey and yet when you go through the scripture, some of the most miraculous endeavors in all of scripture required only a few steps. But the common denominator was and is they were always steps into the unknown. Think of Moses inching well-worn sandals across a burning desert towards a burning literally burning bush what of Peter taking just a few tentative tiptoes out onto a raging sea yet both times although there were only a few steps they were into the unknown and because men would step into the unknown the miraculous occurred I would say to you tonight that you're here for a purpose and a reason, but as long as you camp out in your comfort zone, you're going to get what you've always got. As long as you sit in the pew of familiarity, you're always going to get the same result. You're going to have the same problem, the same sickness, the same bondage, the same issue. It requires a step into the unknown to see the supernatural. Fear of the unknown is common. All humanity suffers. We're not afraid of the dark. We're afraid that we don't know what's in the dark. We're not afraid of heights. We're afraid that we don't know what's going to happen between that height and the ground. We're not afraid of spiders. We're afraid because we don't know what the spider will do. We're not afraid of snakes. We're afraid because we don't know what the snake is going to do. Every fear in its heart, in its root, stems from a fear of the unknown. And spiritually, we suffer from the same disease. We are afraid on a Sunday afternoon when we've got problems and issues and things going wrong in every direction in our life because we don't know what will happen, what someone will say, what the reaction will be. We choose to watch a few people make a trip into the presence of the Lord and lose themselves in worship while we're content to sit on a pew and leave the way we've always been. I tell you, church, I've made my mind up. I don't care what you think. It's worth the trip. I don't care what everybody else says. It's worth the trip to worship. See, we have such a fear. But what are the miles of misery every sinner leaves behind when he or she makes that trip from the pew to the altar? Yes. Right. 
they may not be long trips, but they're trips into the unknown, and the reward is beyond this life. But as we're talking of Moses and the children of Israel, let us explore their situation further. The first thing we've got to look at is the camp. And Israel's escape from Egypt, they were constantly led by the hand of God. And as they made this journey, they rested in temporary, temporary resting places known as the encampment. Now through the laws... Of God, the camp or the encampment was held to the highest sanitary regulations. It was clean. My grandmother used to say the Bible says cleanliness is next to godliness. My grandfather would say, Luella, that's not in there. She'd say, have you read Leviticus? Because God was telling Israel... He was holding them to such a high sanitary regulation. It was his way of saying, I won't live in a mess. For your health uh, and, to, and, and to be host to my presence. It's not just for you, Israel. It's for me as well. I'm not going to live in filth and dirt. Understand it's in the Old Testament, but everything that applies physically in the Old Testament applies spiritually to us as the New Testament church. And God was saying, I'm not going to put up with filthiness. I'm not going to let my presence live there. It's bad for your health, but I won't stay in it. It's not just for you. It's because I, you need my presence, and I'm not going to live in garbage. Now, the camp was set in an orderly fashion. I could preach there all night, but you all, you all know that already. You're helping me preach. See, kicking addiction is not just for your health. It's to have God's hand in your life. Kicking filthy, dirty habits and problems and issues and adultery and fornication is not just for you. It's so God would be comfortable. The camp was set in an orderly fashion and each family had a tent to lodge in. And the tabernacle of meeting was used as a temporary sanctuary while they traveled through the wilderness. It was set in the center of the camp where God resided. Then Moses lived closest to the sanctuary and beyond Moses were the Levites and then the population of the children of Israel lived outside of that. And in our text, we're, we find the children of Israel in a time where they could almost glance across the next horizon and see the promised land. But they became overwhelmed with impatience and allowed it to ultimately lead to sin in their lives. They could not see that the camp, that the dirt from the desert, that moving continually was temporary. And they could not see that the camp in which they lived was a temporary situation and when they were no more at any time than 11 miles from the promised land they got impatient with the temporary and it made them want to sin understand my friend wherever you're at tonight whatever your situation it's temporary no matter how good it is no matter how bad it is it will get better or it could get worse but don't you let impatience with a temporary problem lead you into an eternal mistake don't you let a little bit of 
Luke 11 and 9 said it like this. It said, knock, and the door shall be open, speaking of prayer. But if it works for prayer, it works in the adverse. What happened is Israel began to knock with a little murmuring and a little doubting and a little complaining and a little temporary impatience. And the next thing they knew, it opened the door to idolatry. It opened the door to open unashamed sin in the presence of God. I'm telling somebody tonight, don't you let a temporary problem let you make an eternal decision just because you're a little bit frustrated with where you're at today. My friend, it gets better. This is not the best it's going to get. Your life is headed up. I told myself I'd stay calm tonight. I'm going to try. I want you to hear what I'm saying. And in their impatience, they convinced Aaron to build an idol while Moses is on the mountain speaking to God. Judgment and death falls on the masses. And God decides, I will remove my presence from your camp. Can you imagine what it was like to see the visible dwelling place of God packed up and hauled away only to look in the center of the camp and see a hole larger than the hole left at Ground Zero in New York City on September 11th in the middle of your dwelling place? Can you imagine what it was yesterday to look out your tent door and know that God was in your midst only to look today and there be a massive hole in the midst of your community? Can you imagine what it is to know the comfort of a soft pillow at night that the protection of Jehovah Jireh is in the midst of your camp and only to get up because of stinking impatience and have to look outside the camp and know that if you're going to be in God's presence, you're going to have to make the trip I cannot fathom the conviction that must have moved among the survivors knowing that God was just outside the safety of the camp and yet they chose to stand in the door of their tents and do what little worship they were going to practice same God same tabernacle but now it requires a little walk and because it requires them to leave the safety of their comfort zone, they choose to stand in the door and attempt to worship. Now, I'm going somewhere here. Stay with me, church. But I want to make the point that in the tent is solitude, and solitude only hides our issues. If we go through the word of God and we begin to look at tent dwellers, people that won't leave the tent, people that won't leave the tent are hiding things. If we go to the book of Joshua, we find a man by the name of Achan and Joshua is in prayer with God. Lord, why can't we win a battle? We ought to be smoking these cats. They don't stand a chance against us and they're whipping us back down the mountain every time we make an attempt. God said somebody is hiding something in the tent. They begin to explore and Achan's got gold and silver and a worldly garment stuck under the tent. You know what? It cost him his life, his possessions, his family, and his world. We can take it back further than Achan. We can go to the story of Rachel. Rachel is is in flight with her husband Jacob from her father Laban. And Rachel, for some reason, when Laban pulls up, won't leave the tent. And 
she narrowly escapes and when they begin to look and probe into why she won't leave the tent it's because she's taken pagan idols from her past life and she's trying to bring them into the promised land or the promised children and the first family but if you don't like Old Testament we'll go to the New Testament in the New Testament the book of Acts we find the story of some folks by the name of Ananias and Sapphira and they had problems and issues hidden in their tent it wasn't the fact that they wouldn't give everything it was the fact that they told God they had and tried to leave something in their tent understand that when you hear folks say and I'd not offend you for the world but I just don't like people when you hear folks say I just don't like fellowshipping with people I just can't worship corporately the way they worship what they're saying spiritually is I've got something to hide I'm staying in my tent because there's something I don't want to let go of I can't make the trip to worship because there's something in my past that I can't lay on an altar church I'm telling you I don't care what it is I don't care what's in your past I don't care what you used to be who you used to love it's worth the trip to worship When we choose to sit in the tent of our comfort zone, and thank you four or five folks that are helping me preach, you'll never know what it means. But when we choose to sit in the tent of our comfort zone, rather than stepping out to seek the anointing and the worship that are the presence of God that comes through worship, we need to check ourselves because we're hiding something in our spirits. I'm telling you, it's worth the trip. And I understand. I understand what you're going through. Because just as sanitary as it was inside the camp, it was that dirty on the outside. Just as clean as the inside of the camp was, the walk to the presence of God held that much dirt and filth. Outside the camp was where they buried the dead. Outside the camp is where lepers and the unclean were sent until they could be proclaimed clean. The sin offering was burned outside the camp. Ashes from every sacrifice were taken to an appointed place outside the camp and they were poured out. Criminals, when caught in the act of their crime, were taken outside the camp and they were executed and their corpses were there and the fowl of the air and the beast of the field were there. It was a scary, nasty, dirty mess. It was not. The presence of God may have been an appetizing thing, but the trip from the door of your tent into the presence of the God, of God was as scary as anything they could imagine. Your Jewish upbringing would have told you, don't touch the unclean or we'll stone you. Don't touch the unclean or we'll ostracize you and push you away. Don't touch all the things that are outside the camp because the presence of the Lord won't dwell with you. And now they've got to go through every, every problem, every issue, every criminal from the family their headstones right outside the camp every sacrifice every hard-earned thing they put their lives into and had to sacrifice on an altar the ashes are right outside the camp and they got to walk by them to get into his presence and it's no different today because when you make your mind up 
I'm going to make my way into the presence of the Lord. I'm going to live right. I'm going to stop living for the world. I'm going to stop living for me and I'm going to live for him. Every issue, every problem, every everything you've ever come in contact with that was ungodly is going to stand in the way. You're going to have to pass every sin. You're going to have to pass every sacrifice. You're going to have to pass every problem. You're going to have to pass every chain, every bondage, every burden. But I'm telling you, it's worth the trip to get to an altar. It's worth the trip to get into the presence of the Lord. It's worth the trip to get into the anointing. Church, it's worth the trip to worship. His presence is worth the trip. No matter how long, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, it's worth the trip. It's easy for us to live for God when he's dwelling among us. It's easy to live for God when the praise band's singing about freedom, when they're singing about fire, when the praise band's saying there's no place I'd rather be, and pastors out here laying hands on folks, and bishops in, in the altar area, and he's dancing in the presence of the Lord, and the music's loud, and everything's going the right way. It's easy. It's easy for in those times for us to jump up, and I'm the first one to say it, and crow and stand. He inhabits our praise. But what about the times when it's tough? What about the times when you feel like your prayers aren't getting above the ceiling? I would say to you, it doesn't matter because when you can't get to him, he'll come to you if you'll just get out and make the trip to worship. There'll be Wednesday nights when this place feels dead and dry and twice plucked up, but it's still worth the trip to worship. So as we continue, I ask you, when we have to make our way through the junk of our past, through the problems of our week, through the issues and the difficulties and the circumstances, will we make the trip or do we sit on a pew and watch pastor plow into the anointing and say things like, my God, what a preacher. Understand, it's easy to watch him sweat and work and lather himself into a frenzy and say, didn't he preach a message while we sit on the pew and watch like a spectator sport? And then in six months, I'm sorry, Pastor. I understand it may be a while before I get back. But in six months, we'll be saying things like, well, I'm just not getting fed. And all the time, Paul's writing still true when he said the man that don't work, don't eat. That's incentive on a Wednesday night when a pastor or a bishop or a preacher's up here working and doing everything he can do. Pastor, if you're going to work, I'm going to work with you because I got to get fed. If you're going to worship, I'm going to worship with you because I got to get fed. If I don't get fed, it's not your fault. If I don't get fed, it'll be because I don't make the trip. I got to make the trip to worship. I got to make the trip to get my... Pastor, if you stop, I'm going to run over you. I'm so close behind you. I'm telling you, it's worth the trip. When we stand in the door of the tent, 
come in on somebody else's revival, some revival in some foreign country, the church down the road, supernatural, our well, I'm sure, I'm sure they felt like they were worshiping in the door of their tent. I'm sure they felt like they were getting something, something accomplished, but were they changing anything? They may have been getting a smile every now and then, but were they being transformed by the renewing of their minds? I guess there's probably nothing wrong with worshiping at the door of your tent, but a trip into the presence of the Lord will destroy the yoke. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken off every shoulder and his yoke off of thy neck and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. I have a pastor friend in Texas, and I told you I wouldn't make any promises about short preaching tonight. I apologize. I got a whole manuscript up here. I got a book. You are, and I love that. I have a pastor friend in Texas that a few years ago, understand the South, we don't get snow and ice like you all do. And I'm okay with that. They got, a, they got a, an ice storm a few years ago, and he, was a, he pastors a church just north of Dallas. And, and he got up one, one Friday morning, runs a mechanic shop there in Gainesville, Texas. And he was going to go to work at his shop. And he had a big double armful of towels for, the, for work and for the shop. And when he stepped out, he didn't realize they'd gotten ice. And when he stepped on that top step, his feet went out from under him. They had three concrete steps. And his back was the first thing that hit those steps. He began to yell and scream, and you know, guys, we're guys are, are are pathetic when we get hurt. He starts yelling for his wife, and she gets out there and she helps him up, and they get him back in the house, and she she gets him to the front bedroom and manages to get him up on the bed. And he told me, he said, "Bro, every time I breathed, it hurt." like someone was sticking an ice pick in my spine. Every time my wife took a step across the house, I could feel it. So they let Saturday roll on by because while we're, while we're sissies about getting hurt, we don't want to go to the hospital. We'd rather complain to every woman within a hundred mile radius than go to the hospital. I wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. And so Saturday rocks on by. Sunday morning, he gets up. He says, now, honey, you got to help me get dressed. I'm going to church. She said, you had not been out of the house in two days. She said, he said, I don't miss church. He gets his sweatpants, his T-shirt on, gets him a cane. He starts making it to the car. And she's under one shoulder, and he's got the cane on the other side, and he's, he's dragging his feet, and they get to the car, and he gets to the church and just barely gets through the back door, and he sits down. He said, I can't make it any further. And they start service, and it's kind of like it was here tonight. The drums are bopping, and the bass is thumping, and everybody's worshiping. And if you've ever had any kind of back injury, you know bass is just the, the worst thing in the world. <laughs> Through the first song, he gets a couple of young men to help him in the car. He goes home. Tells his wife, make me an appointment at a doctor tomorrow. I can't live with this. Sunday night rolls around. Guess what? Honey, help me. we got to go back to church. She said you left early this morning. I don't miss church. They get him there, and those same young men that carried him out that morning, they go out to the car and get him out, and basically just kind of drag him up. They get in the back pew. He said, don't stop me at the back pew tonight. Take me to the front. They take him to the altar. 
they got these altar benches in the front of their church. He said, sit me on that altar. They sit him down. He calls those young men up and tells them, I want you to pray for me. Service hadn't started yet. There's no music. Nobody's screaming over the mic. There's no spit and sweat and speed. But some young men gather around him and begin to pray for him. Before long, some of the ladies come out of the prayer room. They gather around and begin to pray. And, and you know, it, it, it took 10 or 15 minutes. They didn't start church on time that night. But he's sitting on that altar, and they're praying for him. And they begin to look around because they're getting lost in the spirit and prayer. And they look up, and Brother King's not sitting on the altar anymore. He's standing among them, and he throws that cane across the front. And he starts, he starts dancing, and he starts shouting, and he starts juking and shaking. Now let a couple of years rock on by and he and Sister King are in traffic in Dallas and somebody can't drive behind them forgets to hit the brakes and the next thing they know they've been rear-ended in downtown Dallas traffic. The ambulance comes and says, now, Reverend, we got to take you to the hospital because there may be whiplash or something, and if you're going to file on your insurance, it's just something we've got to do. And they put him in the ambulance. They take him to the hospital. He's sitting in the room impatient, ready to go, and the doctor walks in and says, Reverend King, why did you not tell me that you'd broken your back? He said, because I never broke my back. Now, sir, there, it's no problem. It's not like you're in trouble or anything, but if you ever have something like this again, you need to tell the physician that your back's been broken so they'll know how to, to, to treat you. You should have told the paramedics so they could have put you on a board and strapped you down because once your back's been broke, it, it's, much, it's much more susceptible to injury in the future. He said, I would tell you, but my back's never been broken. Now, sir... I'm not going to argue with you because I know what a broken back looks like. I have the x-ray right here. Whop. See, here, here, and here, your back was broken. And to be honest with you, I'd like to talk to the surgeon because those are the most beautiful fusions that I've ever seen in my life where he repaired that. And about that time, Sister King remembered when he'd fallen on that step. She said, hey, honey, wait just a minute. Do you remember when you fell on those concrete steps? Understand, he he didn't get his healing on the back pew. He didn't get his healing halfway to the altar, but he got his healing when he made the trip into the presence of the Lord. The altar's worth the trip because it's the only place we're guaranteed anointing is when we sacrifice at an altar. I understand you got the same problems you had last week, but have you brought them to an altar? Have you made the trip? Have you left the you and taking your problems into the anointing. See, everybody can get to church, but not everybody brings their problems to an altar. And we come week in and week out and wonder why preachers preaching about the problems. He says, I can have healing. I ain't never got healing. Have you brought your sickness to an altar? Have you made the trip into the anointing? The criteria has never changed. Anyone who seeks God has to go to the tent of meeting, but because it now requires a trip, they worship at their tent door. There will be times when you and I must touch God. There will be times when you and I must make the effort to get into his presence. We're obsessed with somebody else's revival. Next week, 
there will take up an offering for Haiti and NYC. I will give everything I have because I'm a sap like that. My wife knows that if they're taking a missions offering up to count the cash before I leave the house or I'll give it all. And what will happen is we'll begin to talk about the revival in Haiti. We'll begin to talk about the baptisms and five or six hundred people showing up for a tent service under an old shed on a Thursday night and how many receive the Holy Ghost and we will become so fixated with their revival that we'll begin to dance and shout and last year they had an utter shout down no preaching because of the revival that's happening somewhere else. We become obsessed with a few personalities and Pentecost. If we could get brother so-and-so here to preach for us, then we'd have revival. If we could get old prophet so-and-so back, then he'd win the entire city. But if we would become obsessed with his presence the way we are with somebody else's revival and somebody else's personality, there's no knowing the revival that would occur in our lives, in our cities, and in our churches if we'd become obsessed with making the trip because that prophet, all he's done is made the trip into his presence. Those folks in Haiti and Africa and Germany and all over the world have done nothing nothing more than make the trip into his presence and you and I are afforded the same opportunity to make the same trip into the same presence. He's the same God. His presence is as powerful here as it is anywhere and it's worth the trip. I hope we have revival all over the world, but I want it right here. I'm going to skip some steps here because I've been preaching for a while. But I'm telling you, church, it's worth the trip to worship. The trip to worship will deliver you when you can't feel a goosebump in the doorway of your tent. The trip into the presence of God will give you hope when the doorway of your tent is as dark and hopeless as anywhere you've ever been before. I understand you may not know everything you're going to have to face at an altar, but it's worth the trip because the presence of the Lord awaits you if you can make your way through the problems into his presence. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. No doubt he dealt with scrutiny. He's just an average kid spending all day where nobody else would brave to go. It's through the entire word of God. People made the trip and they dealt with ridicule. You don't know what my mama's going to say if I go to that altar. You wouldn't be the first. You don't know what my family's going to do if I go to that altar again. I'm telling you, it's worth the trip into his presence. I cite to you that even King David had to deal with scrutiny at different points in his life because of the trip he chose to make. 
We preach all the time, time and again. I wish I'd looked this up and had the scripture reference, but you all know the story. You have to take my word for it. We preach time and again about how he danced when the presence of the Lord returned to Israel. He was so happy, so beside himself that the presence of the Lord was coming back to where he lived that he could not contain himself. He danced himself all the way down to a linen ephod. And Michael, his wife, sitting in the window as a spectator, not making the trip herself, but watching someone who did with speculation and ridicule. The king has embarrassed himself today. Now understand, just as a side point, the reason it was an embarrassment is because it wasn't normal. If she'd seen Saul dance before her when she was a child, it'd have been okay for the king to dance. But because she was raised in a king's home and he'd never made the trip into the presence of the Lord, when somebody did, it was abnormal. And whatever we're raised with in the home, we find normal. What one generation lives in the home, the next generation lives in public. We want prayer warriors, we better pray in the home. If you don't believe it, one generation said we won't use the word. We, we got to take God out of schools. And the next generation said we won't let God be on the Democratic National Convention floor. One generation said we'll allow a homosexuality in our homes on television. The next generation said let's make it legal. The divorce rate spiked in one generation and the rate of unwed pregnancy spiked in the next generation. So understand, if we don't make the trip when in our generation, the next generation will never make the attempt. But let's take this David and Michael thing a little further. He's dancing in, and she's saying, you're an embarrassment. And the last scripture in that story says, and David and Michael, or in Michael, bear no children. Now, reverends, Collectively, I have preached many a time that because Michael made fun of a worshiper that she was stricken barren. I've preached to folks, you better be careful what you ridicule. But the word never says that Michael was stricken barren. It just says she had no children. I think that maybe David said, if you're going to ridicule my worship and how I make my way into his presence, I don't care to reproduce with you at any point in this life. I will no longer fellowship with you. I'll no longer be alone with you if you've got to ridicule me when I make my way into his presence. Church, I'm telling you, if folks can't support your trip into the presence, you don't need anything in the world to do with them. If folks can't support you making a change and making a trip into his presence, you ought to drop them like a hot cake. I'm telling you, young person, if they won't make the trip with you, don't associate with them. Ma'am, if he won't come to church with you and make the trip, do not associate. Standing atop a pedestal with a frozen and yet confident posture, she is clad modestly with her eyes steadfastly planted on what's before. She's one of the most 
recognizable icons in all the world, renowned for her symbolism. Nestled within her right arm is a tablet, balanced by her left hand upholding a torch. She is the Statue of Liberty, one of the most visited landmarks in all the world. Perched on an island in New York Harbor, she dons her seven-point crown, awaiting the droves of tourists to visit. In many ways, we, the church, have become like the Statue of Liberty, elevated on a pedestal, clad modestly as we should and must be, and steadfastly focused, renowned as a symbol of freedom, nestling the date of our independence from the world closely to our person, standing, holding a torch that all too often doesn't warm anybody, wearing a crown representing a kingdom that sadly a lot of us are unfamiliar with. Yet we stand awaiting people to come. With many visiting and knowing what she represents, they too often are not compelled by that knowledge to make a change and take the trip to liberty. And right behind her, past the historic buildings scattered on Ellis Island, the horizon finds itself parallel to that famous New York City skyline. She's framed, frozen, unable to make the trip. And Jesus' most important words were a mere call for us to jog our memories about the Bible's first Statue of Liberty. Some of the most important words he ever spoke were phrased like this, Remember Lot's wife. Remember this woman who was delivered from the ill-fated destiny of those doomed twin cities but decided to look back on what she was brought out of instead of taking the trip into liberty. Remember Lot's wife, now that pillar of salt frozen in the scripture, so close to the discovery of freedom, yet unable to make the trip. And tonight, there are some of us that God is pulling out with his word, but we'd prefer to look back on what we used to be and focus on all the problems and the issues rather than make the trip into his anointing. I ask you tonight at the close of this message, who will decide that you will no longer linger near the doorway of your tent, but you will experience God in the fullness of his presence, that you will know what joy unspeakable and full of glory is, that you will know peace that passes understanding rather than sitting frozen where you've been for so long. Would you take the trip from your pew to the altar where we're guaranteed? His anointing. Israel was always favored. They were even led by the hand of God after His presence moved. But they knew, no longer knew the joy of His presence. Understand, there was still a certain amount of protection there because they were God's people. There's always a certain amount of joy that's going to come from being in his house on a Sunday night. There's always a little bit of satisfaction that's going to come from knowing that you were where he, it, 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 where his people gather. But why would you get so close and not make the trip into freedom? Why would you walk through the back doors and not make ten more steps to the altar? Why would you come into this house and leave with the same problem that you came with? I'm telling you, church, it's worth the trip. 
ma'am, it is truly worth the trip. Sir, it's worth the trip to go beyond where you've been before. Would you stand with me, church? Would you lift your hands and begin to talk to them a little bit? Begin to pray a little bit. Some of you seasoned prayer warriors that know what it is to make the trip, you ought to pray in the Spirit a little bit tonight. We don't need that five or ten minute token altar call that we give an evangelist because he's made the trip to have church with us. We've got to have a sovereign mood of a God. We gotta know his presence. There are some of us that have been living in misery for too long. There are those among us that have been sick one day longer than you need to be sick. Your marriage has been in turmoil too long when the presence of God awaits you at an altar. Come on, church, let's turn this place into a house of prayer for a few minutes. Lift your hands, lift your voice. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.